If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Chris Eliasmith. He's the Canadian Research Chair in Theoretical Neuroscience. He's a professor with, get this, a joint appointment in philosophy and systems design engineering. And if that's not enough, cross appointment to the computer science department at the University of Waterloo. He is the director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience, and he was awarded the Insert Polanyi Award for his work developing a computer model of the human brain. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, um, what is intelligence? Right, that's a tricky question, but one that I know you always like to start with. So, uh, I think intelligence uh, is actually, I'm teaching a course on this this term, so I've been thinking about it a lot recently. And uh, it strikes me as kind of the deployment of a set of skills that allow us to accomplish goals in a very wide variety of circumstances. And so, it's one of these things I think definitely comes in degrees, um, but we can think of some very stereotypical examples of the kinds of skills that seem to be important for intelligence. And these include things like abstract reasoning, planning, um, working with symbolic structures, and of course, learning. Uh, I also think it's clear that we generally don't consider things to be intelligent unless they're highly robust and can deal with lots of uncertainty. Um, you know, basically, some interesting notions of creativity often pop up when we think about what counts as intelligent or not. And it definitely depends more on how we manipulate knowledge than the knowledge we happen to have at a particular point in time. Well, you know, you, you, you said I, I like to start with that, but you were actually the first person in 56 episodes I asked that question to. Ask everybody else what artificial intelligence is, but, <laughs> but we really have to start with intelligence. And so in, in what you just said, it sounded like there was a functional definition, like it is skills, but yeah, it's, al- it's also creativity. It's also dealing with uncertainty. And I mean, so let's start with the most primitive thing, which would be, um, you know, a, 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 a white blood cell that can uh, detect and kill an invading germ. Is that intelligent? I mean, it's got that skill. Right. So I think, uh, you know, it's interesting that you bring that example up because people are actually now talking about bacterial intelligence and plant intelligence. Uh, They're definitely attempting to use the word in ways that I'm not especially comfortable with, uh, largely because I think what you're pointing to in these instances are sort of complex and sophisticated interactions with the world. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think the notion of intelligence that we are more comfortable with are ones that deal with more cognitive kinds of behaviors, uh, generally more abstract kinds of behaviors. And the, the sort of degree of complexity in that kind of dealing with the world is far beyond, uh, I think, what you find in things like blood cells and bacteria. Um, nevertheless, you know, I mean, we can always put these things on a continuum um, and decide to use words in whichever particular ways we find useful. Well, um, but I think I'd like to restrict it to these sort of higher order kinds of uh, complex interactions we see with Let's say I'm math. with that. I'm, 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 I'm with that. So let me ask a different question. How is human intelligence uh, unique in the world, as far as we know? How, what is different about human intelligence? Right. So, yeah, there are a couple of standard answers, I think. But, you know, even though they're standard, I think they still capture some uh, sort of essential insights. So one of the most unique things about human intelligence is our ability to use abstract representations. Uh, so, you know, we create them all the time. Uh, the most ubiquitous examples, of course, are language, um, where we're just making sounds, but we can use it to refer to things in the world. We can use it to refer to classes of things in the world. We can use it to refer to things that are not in the world. Um, And we can uh, exploit these representations to coordinate very complex social behaviors, um, you know, including things like technological development, as well as political systems and so on. And so that that sort of level of complex behavior that's coordinated by abstract symbols is something that you just do not find in any other species on the planet. Um, So I think that's one standard answer, which I like. Uh, The other one is that the amount of uh, sort of mental flexibility that humans display 
seems to outpace most other uh, kinds of creatures that we see around us. Um, so this is basically just our ability to learn. So you know, one reason that people are in every single climate on the planet and able to survive in all those climates is because we can learn and adapt to unexpected circumstances. Um, and sometimes it's not because of abstract social reasoning or social uh, skills or abstract language, but rather just because of our ability to develop um, solutions to problems, which could be uh, requiring spatial reasoning uh, or other kinds of reasoning, which aren't, aren't necessarily guided by language. I read the other day a really interesting thing, which was the only animal that will will look in the direction you point is a dog, which sounds to me, I don't know, it may be meaningless, but it sounds to me like, A, we probably selected for that, right? Like the dog that when you say, go get him, you know, that, that actually looks over there, uh, we, would, we would say, that's a good dog. But is, is there anything abstract in that, in that I point at something and then the animal then turn, turns and looks at it? Um, I mean, I don't think there's anything especially abstract. To me, that's an interesting kind of social coordination. It's not, not the kind of abstractness I was talking about with language, I don't think. Okay. Um, do, you, yeah. do you think Gallup's, um, you know, the, 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 the red dot, the thing that tries to wipe the dot off its forehead, uh, is that a test that shows intelligence? Like the creature understands what a mirror is, that, ah, that is me in the mirror. Um, or what do you think is going on there? Right. I think uh, that is definitely an interesting test. Um, I'm not sure if how sort of directly it's getting at intelligence. That seems to be something more related to self-representation. Uh, self-representation is, you know, likely something that matters for, again, social coordination. So being able to distinguish self yourself from others. Um, and I think often uh, more intelligent animals tend to be more social animals, likely because social interactions are so incredibly sophisticated. So you see this kind of thing definitely happening in dolphins, um, which are one of the animals that can pass the, the red dot test. Um, and you also see animals like dogs, we consider generally pretty intelligent, again, because they're very social. And that might be why they're good at you know, reacting to things like pointing uh, and so on. But yeah, it's difficult to say that um, sort of recognition in a mirror or some simple task like that is really going to let us identify something as being intelligent or not intelligent. I think the, the notion of intelligence is generally just much broader and it really has to do with uh, sort of the set of skills. Like I'll go back to my def definition essentially, right? Like the set of skills that we can bring to bear and the wide variety of circumstances that we can use them to successfully solve problems. So when we see, you know, dolphins doing this kind of thing, so, you know, they take sponges and put them on their nose so they can protect their nose from uh, spiky animals when they're searching the seabed, you know, that's an interesting kind of intelligence because they, they use their understanding of their environment to solve a particular problem. Um, they also have done things like, you know, killed spiny urchins to poke eels to get them out of crevices. Like they've done all these sorts of things, which, you know, it's given the variety of problems that they've solved and the sort of interesting and creative ways they've done it that make us want to call dolphins intelligent. I don't think it's merely seeing a dot in a mirror that's kind of like lets us know, ah, you know, they've got the, the intelligence part of the brain. I think it's a really a, a more sort of comprehensive kind of set of skills. Fair enough. I'll, I'll ask one more kind of a just animal kind of question before we dive into the specifics. But I think the most fascinating intelligent animal is the octopus because they have <laughs> these really short lives. They're solitary animals. And, um, and it's interesting. I read that there is a, um, a Hawaiian myth that before the world that we know existed, there was other life here and it all died except the octopus. That <laughs> it's this one thing that's left over from this primordial ancient time and that it's a different sort of thing than us. So do you have any thoughts on the octopus? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're super cool. I completely agree. I, I, uh, I haven't uh, studied octopus intelligence in any degree. Uh, I was just reading about dolphins, which is why I had those ones at hand. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I honestly, uh, yeah, I don't have a strong opinion. And I, largely well, so because I just don't know much about let's it. Let's start with the human brain. Is it sure. safe to say, look, you know as much about the thing as anybody. So you tell me, what do we know about the brain and what do we not know? <laughs> well, <laughs> that could take a very long time on both topics. Um, so I'd like to say this, actually, uh, because it might sound a little controversial. And that is that I think we know more about the brain than even neuroscientists tend to let on. Um, so the reason I say that is I've 
you know, read many uh, books about the brain and people expressing their opinions about how parts of the brain work and so on, where typically the very first sentiment that readers run into, uh, especially when it's geared to a, a sort of um, public audience, is that, you know, the brain is incredibly mysterious and we know almost nothing about it. Um, but I think that, you know, does a little bit of a disservice to all kinds of interesting advances that have happened recently, both in neuroscience on the experimental side, uh, but also on the theoretical side. I think we have a whole bunch of new tools and new ways of understanding what uh, brains are representing, how they're organized, how computation can be performed in brains that really has, you know, made us, put us in a position where we can understand these things much better than we have before. So if you know, if I was going to say this in the sort of most controversial way I could, it would be that it's not obvious to me that we need sort of theoretical advances in order to um, build a very sophisticated understanding of, the brain, of how the brain works. Uh, instead, what we need are more like engineering advances. That is, we need to apply the methods and theories that we have right now at scale to try to see if we can, you know, build them up to the point where they're actually able to tackle something as sophisticated as the human brain. And uh, that's just going to take a lot of time and effort and computation and model building and all kinds of things. Um, but it's not obvious to me, at least, that we're sort of fundamentally missing some theoretical insight that's going to let us understand how the brain functions. Okay, let's let's talk about that. So I know that this is like me, you know, shooting free throws with Michael Jordan at this point. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give my best shot here. So let me ask the first and simple question: How is a memory encoded? in the brain like i like if i think uh, okay what's the earliest birthday i remember ah i remember my fifth birthday oh yes we did that. so where how is that encoded in the brain and how is that retrieved right so uh you know our best understanding of how memories are encoded is that it's in the connections between the neurons um so there are uh proteins that get embedded into the cell walls and the sort of amount of proteins that get embedded determine how strongly two neurons can be connected. And if you change those connection strengths, then you can change the way that uh, information is uh, sort of treated as it passes through these connections. And so one way to encode long-term memories of the kind you're talking about is to you know, take a bunch of neurons and change their connection strengths such that the next time that you're sort of in in the uh, sort of representational neighborhood that you were in when you encoded that information, you can retrieve it and sort of fill in lots of background information about exactly what happened on your fifth birthday or whatever whatever the long-term memory is that you're trying to uh, to work with. So that, you know, there's a, a process of encoding, which seems to go sort of through the hippocampus where you do very rapid encoding of sort of like the day's events. And then over time that gets transferred up into association cortices, which is kind of where it becomes a long-term memory. And then when you asked about, like, how do I retrieve it? Well, essentially what, uh, you know, it seems like you do is you sort of partially construct a um, context, which is going to be able to let you retrieve the remainder of that information. So you basically prompt yourself with something like my fifth birthday that goes into the hippocampus. It uh, sort of is encoded or it's sort of used as an address to the longer-term memory. And then you go to the longer-term memory and, you know, both uh, retrieve explicit information about that date as well as reconstruct sort of plausible information about that date and then report that as kind of the thing that you remember. But to what degree, so we can, we, we're pretty good, right, at measuring activity in the brain, like where it's happening and where things are firing and where they're not. But, 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 but one level deeper, I mean, it sounds like you're saying, you know, it's kind of, it's just like music is the space between the notes. It's, 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 it's almost like a Zen sort of thing you're saying. We can't read a thought nor write a thought nor algorithmically express how a thought is stored nor, nor do any of that kind of stuff, nor do we even know how to. Is that not correct? Have, um, I, have people been holding out information on me all this time? <laughs> well, so, you know, I mean, we can read and write thoughts in our models. Uh, we can't necessarily read and write thoughts in the human brain, but that's because, in fact, we don't have a very good tools for being able to manipulate those proteins, right? So we can't, so, you know, the, I think the, the kind of uh, tools that you're talking about, so fMRI and things, you know, they're, they're making sort of very high level uh, amalgamations across millions and millions of neurons and showing which parts of the brain are most active during particular tasks. They're not giving you access to what's going on in all of the, you know, billions of connections um, between all these different parts of the 
system while you're doing things like retrieving a memory. So, you know, right now we're getting very large scale views of these systems and we don't have ways of manipulating them such that we could actually go in and try to change all this kind of thing. But isn't it um, the case that like, you know, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, they're glial cells. There's just as many of those as neurons and they seem to do their own thinking. And, and that like, we, we still have these kind of monumental discoveries that seem to be almost transformative that don't seem to indicate a system that we have a high degree of understanding. Well, I mean, you know, in any science, people get excited about all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're central to the question of interest. So uh, in the case of glial cells, I think there's definitely lots of things we don't know, but there's been not a really strong connection between that and things like cognitive function or uh, long-term memory or even learning. So, you know, the place where people try to make the biggest deal is in learning. Um, but that doesn't mean that if we give a description of learning where we say, oh, we've got all these neurons, they have connections between them, and the learning is changing the weights, we have, might not be able to provide a detailed mechanism for exactly how the weights are changed, uh, and maybe glial cells play a role in that. But we would still have a very deep understanding of how the brain works if we just can say, well, weights are changed, you know, and here's a, here's a mathematical description of how they're changed, but we don't have a mechanistic description of that yet. Um, you know, we, it's sort of like there's all kinds of scientific knowledge to be had about uh, materials and um, all kinds of, uh, you know, chemical interactions and so on without going down to the quantum level and being able to spell out the quantum mechanisms doesn't mean that we can't have very deep understandings at sort of, you know, slightly more abstract characterizations than what you might need to when you're talking about things like glial cells and so on. Fair enough. So let's, let's, you know, you, you made the comment that we're in like every single climate on the, on the planet, uh, that that may be indicative of our intelligence. I will also, you know, bring up the, the lowly nematode worm, who's also in every climate on the planet. And as you know, I'll just set this up for the listener that 70% of all uh, animals on the planet are nematode worms. And they're these little bitty things that are the size of, they're as long as a hair is wide. And they were one of the very first things whose genome we sequenced. They had 302 neurons in their brain, uh, two of which don't seem to be connected to anything else. But anyway, um, <laughs> and, and for 20 years, people have been trying to model those 300 neurons, which only have 10,000 connections between them. So about as many neurons as in a bowl of cereal has about 10,000 connections between them to try to build a digital nematode worm. And as I understand it, and you're going to know this far better than me, but as I understand it, people in the project still say it may not be possible. So tell me, is, is that largely an accurate description of the Open Worm Project? And why should, should we be further along if we understood kind of the basics of how a brain works? So, yeah, this is a, always an interesting example to bring up. Um, and I think it actually might tell us something quite interesting about uh, brains, how they function, and, and so on, and uh, what we're trying to explain. What, what is our target of explanation? Um, so in the case of the nematode worm, um, you know, you really have to ask yourself exactly what are you trying to explain or build. Um, so, you know, we have robots that uh, can move around and interact with their environment and, you know, do all kinds of things that are similarly described at a behavioral level to the kind of thing that you would associate with the nematode worm. Um, now, it's interesting that when we go and we try to reconstruct every single cell in the nematode and connect them all together, um, that, you know, the, the system that when, when we run it, it doesn't seem to do anything. But, you know, we haven't really reconstructed the environment of the nematode. Um, it's not clear that we are getting the inputs and outputs of the nematode correct in our digital simulations. Um, it's also not really clear if we have all of the knowledge that we actually need in order to reconstruct the nematode, namely, like, what are all the precise connection strengths between the connections? So we know what all the connections are, and we can label them. But you know the thing that determines the dynamics of the system and how it interacts with its environment um, are also going to depend on uh, exactly how they're talking to one another, which strengths there are between them, and so on. So, you know, it, if we want to say that um, the uh, mechanisms of the nematode worm are spelled out in complete detail, such that they can reproduce the behavior, it doesn't seem to be the case that that's true. Um, but it is the case that, you know, we can come up with very similar kinds of mechanisms that perform similar kinds of behaviors, right? So, again, like, I'm not sure which of these you want to count as uh, an understanding well, or an explanation. I, I, I guess, you know, the nematode worm displays 
certain behaviors that taken together have made it arguably the most successful animal on the planet. Uh, it can go towards light, it can find food, it can mate, it can move, it can do all of these things on like its own volition with, with its 302 little neurons like chugging away. And, and so I think the question that one wants to get at is, you know, can you, with, with, with such a tiny little problem, can't you try all manners of, of weights and all manners of relationships and model it 12 ways to Sunday? I mean, it's like, can't we, shouldn't we be, isn't it interesting that we cannot make more progress towards that? Or are you saying, no, it's not all that interesting. There's, you know, there's some stuff we don't know and big deal. That doesn't, that doesn't hold a candle to what we do know. And just because you don't know the last year to put in a watch doesn't mean you don't know how the watch works. So what is, what is your take on it, um, on why we can't seemingly reproduce from the ground up the behavior of the nematode worm, provided that we, that we have this basic idea of how a brain works? Okay, so I think, yeah, there's a couple of things that are getting wound together here. So one is, um, you know, if we're talking about intelligence, then uh, sort of mere success at being in all, all over the place isn't what I was proposing as a measure of intelligence, right? I was uh, pointing out that humans are able to use their intellectual capacity, or like one reason that we think they're intelligent is because they can use them to solve sort of difficult problems for, you know, sort of no matter how we characterize them um, across all these sorts of contexts. Um, so to be highly survivable, I mean, that's also a good thing, but it's clearly not an indicator of intelligence. So, you know, bacteria are also highly survivable as are viruses and so on. Um, so I don't think we want to confuse that with like claims about intelligence. Absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah, and I don't think you were trying to, but you're just saying like you wanted to get to the point, well, just a minute, more importantly, even in this simple system, brain-like system, um, you know, we're not able to, uh, and then the exact what we're not able to do thing is, I think, what I was trying to emphasize in my last answer. So you really want to be careful about exactly what is the target of explanation, right? So when people say that we fail to reproduce a nematode, um, it's not always clear exactly what it is that we're precisely failing to do, right? So, well, presumably if it's, it's behavioral. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. if it's be. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if it's behavioral, then I think we're actually fairly successful in the sense that we can build uh, systems that, you know, imitate or generate many of the kinds of behaviors that nematodes do. But, um, but unrelated to how the nematode does it, right? I mean, like... You could do it either way. I don't think... Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, sort of doing something like using a neural network kind of thing um, or using a yeah, non-neural network kind of thing. The, uh, essentially, the, the uh, behaviors are typically simple enough that you can do them either way. Um, now, yeah, whether we can build something that's as robust as a nematode, that might not be the case, but that might be more of a materials problem, right? If, if anyone was going to ask me, like, what are the biggest restrictions for AI right now, um, especially in applied AI and robotics and so on, right, when you want to interact with an environment, I think it often comes down to things like, you know, building really sophisticated bodies. And nematodes, you know, they materially outdo us as far as, you know, very microscopic kinds of things with all kinds of inputs and outputs and like, you know, just the kinds of things that we can't really build yet um, on a physical device side. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think we can uh, wonder sometimes about exactly what it is that we're worried about in the failure of the nematode project to the extent that it does fail, I guess. Well, I guess the idea is if, if, if I found another worm that was successful and it had three neurons and it, it exhibited complex behavior, and it could do things. And then we say, okay, let's, let's model three neurons in a computer just to show we know how, how it works. And then you say, well, we, we can't do that either. Like we can build systems that can duplicate that behavior, but we still don't know how these three neurons interact to produce that behavior. Yeah, I think I, I, actually the other point I wanted to make is that it's not clear to me that the neurons matter really in the same way that they matter for a large scale brain. So Interesting. So and by that, I mean, you know, like you get very sophisticated behaviors out of bacteria and all kinds of things as well, where they have no neurons, right? So like, yeah, so merely okay. complexity or, you know, as soon as you're dealing with a physical system or nonlinear dynamical system, which is exactly what you're dealing with in all these instances, uh, it gets very difficult to explain anything, right? Regardless of sort of how many neurons it does or doesn't have, 
Um, and also depending on what you count as a good explanation or not a good explanation, right? So I think if we move to this kind of definition of intelligence I was describing before, where we're talking about sort of sets of skills, ability to solve problems, um, dealing with abstract representations and so on, then you know we can build systems which, and we do understand to some extent how you know mammalian brains seem to uh, deal with those kinds of problems. So, you know, way back in the day when, when, when I guess atoms were first theorized, they said, you know, these are, these are the basic units of, of the universe. And then all of a sudden, people bust those open and all kinds of stuff comes swimming out of those. And then we have to, you know, it's like, it, it seems like every time we, we, we look at something, we can bust it down and, and there's all kinds of other stuff going on. And there are those who, who claim, who believe uh, that, a, that a neuron, a human brain neuron, is actually as complicated as a, as a single neuron. Is actually as complicated as a supercomputer. That what's happening is happening down at the Planck scale. It is an inexplicably complicated uh, mechanism. That uh, in its singleness is is um, unutterably uh, complex. But take a hundred billion of them and put them together, and it's it's maybe beyond us. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think we're running into the same question about sort of uh, targets of explanation and levels of um, description, right? So uh, I think we can look at a single neuron as a nonlinear dynamical system, and we can say it's incredibly complicated because it is like any cell, right? Any single cell that you look at is incredibly complicated. Um, but this doesn't mean that our um, explanations that we find satisfactory for particular targets like intelligence need to refer to those low-level properties, right? So th this is sort of a thing that typically comes up in philosophy of science where people talk about, you know, if I make certain kinds of abstractions, um, can I still generate good explanations? And I think through the history of science, we generally find out that the answer is yes. So, you know, we don't have to talk about every molecule in a gas in order to have the gas law. Um, we can, you know, find a level of abstraction which gives us all kinds of useful explanations for particular targets. Um, which don't necessarily refer to the smallest part. And so I would say the same thing is probably true of the brain. And, you know, there's always going to be disagreements about what the right level of analysis is. I think in the case of the brain, it depends on your question, right? So if we're asking high-level questions about intelligence uh, and, so, you know, large-scale systems and so on, then maybe the things that matter most are the fact that we have a neuron that has a threshold and maybe some first-order dynamics. And with that, we can actually generate explanations which we find quite satisfactory as being able to help us understand how brains learn, how they can represent abstract structure, how they can deal with language, how they can do spatial reasoning, how they can control a complicated motor system. You know, so if we can answer all of those questions in a way that we find satisfactory and we can reproduce in our devices, um, then we might think, yeah, we have a really good understanding of the brain. It doesn't mean that we understand how the same thing works when you make each one of my simple abstractions as complicated as the real thing. Um, but I think this is a kind of problem that shows up consistently throughout science, right? It's uh, for, for neuroscience to run into it, it shouldn't really be a surprise in some ways. So let's move from the brain to the mind and, and I, will, I will define my term here. Great. Um, so um, the mind is a concept is we use all the time, right? Like uh, I'm of two minds about that. Are you out, you know, Dr. McCoy was always, are you out of your Vulcan mind? And if you use the word brain, I'm of two brains about this, all of a sudden, it doesn't feel quite the same. And so the mind, it, I think a definition that everybody might find tolerable is it's the set of, of functions, the set of abilities of the brain that seem, just seem, beyond what an organ should be able to do. So you don't expect your liver to have a sense of humor or to, to be indignant or to, um, to be creative, but your brain is. And those, whatever those aspects are that just, again, just seem like, hmm, should it be able to do that? Um, I call that the mind. And so do you, what do you, what do you think that is? So would, would you say the mind is just stuff about the brain that is like really cool? And so we call it the mind? Um, yeah, I think basically, you know, I'm happy to say that uh, the mind is a product of the brain, I guess. I, I'm, I mean, also happy with the identity myself. So um, 
of course, linguistically, it does sound strange to say I'm of two brains, um, but sort of technically speaking, from a scientific perspective, I think that all of the things we attribute to minds are things that we would explain as being the consequence of brain function. Uh, so I'm happy to think of the mind as maybe a fairly high-level abstract way of describing brain functions. And I think it's really interesting to try to figure out exactly how various things that we attribute to the mind can come out of brain function. But certainly the mind, I assume you believe, is somehow emergent in, in the sense that none of your neurons individually have a sense of humor, but collectively uh, you have a sense of humor. So that's an emergent property of the brain, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. And so, so if there, there are two, you know, kinds of emergence, there's the one that like, you can kind of understand it, you can reconstruct it backwards and see, oh, that's how it happens. And then there's strong emergence, which says, no, you actually can't, you actually can't put these pieces together and explain why they produced that. It's inexplicable with all known laws of physics. So do you, do you think the mind your sense of humor, we'll just use that. Is your sense of humor a weak emergent phenomenon, or do you do you even think strong emergence exists? Um, yeah, I would be a weak emergentist. <laughs> so I don't think it's the case that there are um, features of minds that we wouldn't be able to explain with uh, by re referring to brain function, essentially. So, I mean, I think we might have to maybe extend our, like, again, so this is maybe going in a different direction than you're suggesting, but... You know, there's all kinds of uh, interesting, complicated behaviors that people exhibit, which are things that we probably want to talk about, you know, social interactions or things that are outside of the body uh, in some ways in order to give a good explanation. But I think sort of the ultimate contribution of the individual to those explanations is going to be through the brain. All right. Fair enough. So before before we get on to your work, which I don't I, I want to save plenty of time for, because that. That's like a whole episode of itself. I, I would, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't talk about consciousness. So to set that one up, consciousness is something we all agree, again, on the definition, I think so, on the definition. It's subjective experience. It's the difference between, you know, feeling heat and being able to measure temperature. It's the taste of pineapple, the, you know, all of, all of that, all that stuff. It's qualia. Um, and yet it doesn't seem like it's a question we know how to pose scientifically, how it is that, that, inorganic, or that organic or inorganic matter can experience the universe. It doesn't seem like a question we know how to pose scientifically nor answer scientifically. So do you agree with that? And what's kind of your, your shtick on consciousness? <laughs> um, right, yeah, my shtick on consciousness is usually that I don't talk about it. <laughs> and uh, it's largely because uh, I agree with philosophers who often identify it as a fairly confused subject matter. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Dennett's typical take on these kinds of, of things. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I tend to be. So he says, he yeah. says it doesn't really exist. I mean, like, it's just brain function and there's nothing particularly mysterious going on. And, and there isn't really a hard problem, never existed. Uh, um, so. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess I don't think that he doesn't think consciousness exists because that would obviously well, be a preposterous claim. Like, I mean, we all realize that enough, we have he says, he, You're right. He says there's nothing outside of normal brain function that requires an additional explanation beyond simple brain function. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, he's challenging the idea that um, when you identify this thing that we came up with a word for, qualia, that that thereby demands some uh, special explanation or it's really a thing that you know, you can actually ask intelligible questions about and so on. So yeah, I which is, I think, the same way as what you said, that you're not really asking for more than what you're going to get when you get a complete explanation of the physical well, part of the brain function, right? Yeah, let me ask a different version of the question then, which is, we understand how you could hurt, uh, you could hook up a thermometer to a computer, and then you could, um, you could have an MP3 play, uh, ah, when that thermometer gets 500 degrees. And we understand the computer could sense temperature and and give a response to that in your view can a computer feel pain um so i don't think it would probably feel pain the same way people do because it would have different kinds of experience um but i also think that um we're not in a position to imagine the complexity of a system that it might take in order to really respond to these kinds of stimuli as pain right the way that we respond to the same stimuli so I like basically what I'm challenging is the idea that uh, our inability to un to or sort of our incredulity when we imagine 
hooking up a thermometer to a computer and it sort of yelling ah that that's actually pain is really just our inability to understand exactly how to properly hook up <laughs> hook up a system so that it is actually responding to that as pain but i can imagine an alien you know made of ice crystals um that uh, lives on some ice planet and when the sun is too hot it's ah! and i can imagine this alien hurting as the as the, as its skin is melting off of it uh, okay. So it's not a it's not a lack of imagination that that something very different than a, than an animal as we know it can feel pain. I think the question okay. is how could how can a computer go from sensing something to feeling something like what what is you know the the juice what's the missing element in that? So I mean it goes the same way that uh, inorganic chemistry and organic chemistry goes from things that don't sense things to things that do. So I don't think there's any more of a mystery imagining silicon. I mean, you just imagined an ice creature that screams in pain. So I don't understand why it's harder to imagine a silicon creature that has the same experience. Right, right. I mean, I guess unless you think that there's something inherent in life that is emergent in a way that a, that a machine cannot, I don't know. That yeah, it's... so, you know, there are people like John Searle who come to those of conclusions, course. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would definitely disagree with that, yeah. Where do you think? Where do you think he... He's he's so great. I like anyway. Where do you, I mean, you know? He's like uh, the calculator's job is not to you know. It's that's not his job to be conscious. It's it's not his job to be intelligent. Um, where do you think he he kind of falls? Uh, where do you where do you part company with him? Um, where do I part company with him? Yeah. So uh, I basically part company with his uh, final conclusion. So he's you know he's basically finds himself thrust into a corner where. The only thing that he has left when he's trying to explain where understanding comes from is uh, basic biology. So he, you know, he he denies all of the responses to his Chinese room to the point where there's nothing left except for him to say, well, bio biology can fundamentally understand high-level complex abstract concepts, but non-biological systems can't. And to me, that kind of mystery just may, should make you realize that you've just sort of disproven your original starting thesis. Hmm. Now, the question really comes down to, I think, which of the responses to his um, uh, Chinese room thought experiment are re is really the best one. And so, you know, I have a favorite, which is- Tell me your like, favorite, go ahead. Yeah, so it's something like a systems response, uh, probably coupled with a little bit of learning, right? Where you can actually allow the system to rewrite its own internal manual. It can do that based on, you know, all the kinds of characters and things that it's you know, interacting within the world. And so I'm basically, you just, you know, if you make the the computer as sophisticated as what we think minds really are, or animals really are, then I don't understand why uh, you, you wouldn't attribute the same kind of understanding to the computer system as you do to animals. So the librarian's like changing the books and as the librarian changes the books, the, the it's learning and it's growing and it's advancing, and it's alive and eventually it could be conscious kind of. So, that, I mean, these things all also depend on speed. So, like, whenever right. you map it onto mm -hmm. a, yeah, so you're thinking more of his, like, Chinese nation experiment. Uh, I think, again, you begin to push yourself outside of uh, the kinds of function, functional properties that matter for things that we would like to call intelligent. Um, you know, basically, libraries with librarians inside just can't react fast enough. They can't solve the same kinds of problems that we expect mm -hmm. intelligent systems to solve and so on. All right, Chris. Well, you have been so patient uh, taking <laughs> taking me all the way from uh, the nematode worm to consciousness. Tell me about um, neomorphic computing. Start with what is it? Right. So neuromorphic computing is uh, a kind of computation that is basically trying to figure out what the fundamental principles of neural computation are and reproduce those in silicon. Uh, so the idea here is, you know, I, I've, as you have uh, Sort of demonstrated. I spend a lot of time thinking about high-level concepts like intelligence and figuring out how brains could give rise to those sorts of things. And you know, in the process of constructing lots of models and running them on computers, because this is how we like to build brain models in my lab, um, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that the kinds of computational tools we're working with are really not designed to run the kinds of algorithms that brain run brains run natively. Uh, and so there is a whole area of um, engineering, essentially, which is uh, neuromorphic engineering, where people have really been pushing the envelope and trying to understand new forms of computation, which aren't necessarily von Neumann, they're not necessarily digital, 
Um, and they've been trying to push it in directions that are inspired by fundamental properties of neural computation. Um, so we've been working with uh, several groups that do this kind of thing. And I think it's super exciting to you know, begin to think about uh, not only the ability to run much bigger models, more sophisticated models of neural function at much larger scales, um, but in fact, there's all kinds of interesting industrial applications as well. Such as, I mean, like, what, what? Give, give me some specifics, some use cases, some successes, some failures, some challenges. Like, where, <laughs> where are we at with the science? Sure. Yeah. So, um, there's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I just trying to think about where to begin exactly. So, um, you know, my lab built this really big brain model called Spawn, um, and uh, after we had done that, uh, we were approached by you know people who are interested in this kind of thing and wondering does it have commercial applications um and ultimately myself and the entire team that was on spawn decided that it did and so we started this company called applied brain research where of course we're doing what the company's title says and that is we're applying the brain research that we had done and uh it's been interesting because i think it's actually pushed the research in interesting directions uh in the lab um trying to make these computational ideas actually practically applicable. So, you know, you have to really run something in the world and solve a real problem, deal with all the complexities of the world, which aren't necessarily in your um, pristine simulation. And the place that this comes really clearly evident is in robotics. So we've been looking at a bunch of uh, robotics applications showing how you can sort of learn uh, things that you don't know about your own motor system on the fly in order to actually improve your performance in ways that are highly inspired by the brain. Um, and then this all comes back to the neuromorphic computing because, again, to do this, the kinds of computers we have are really, you know, you can do it with them, but they're using huge amounts of energy to do this kind of thing. Whereas if you have the neuromorphic computers, you can do the same thing with, you know, tens to hundreds of times less power. And again, if you want to build a really big, complicated robot, then you need to use hundreds or thousands of times less power than what current compute would do. Um, because, you know, when we sat down and thought, well, let's say we build something at the scale of a human brain, it's got 100 billion neurons on it, you know, how much GPU power do we need to simulate 100,000 neurons? Let's multiply that by big numbers. And we find out that we need, you know, power plants worth of energy, like gigawatts of power to be running a human-sized brain. Uh, that's obviously just not going to be feasible, right, if we really want to build one of these kinds of systems. Uh, and so neuromorphic computers is a way of just getting uh, past that really quickly and saying, you know, we can build these really big, sophisticated systems and actually run them on reasonable power budgets, which, again, that's not the kind of thing that really occurred to me when I was looking at brain models. But, you know, brains are incredibly power efficient. They run on 20 watts uh, and uh, they do far more sophisticated things than our computers running on hundreds or thousands of watts. Um, so I think it's really interesting to to figure out, you know, what is it about the way brains are designed that we can port over to devices and build devices that can do all kinds of, you know, interesting AI kinds of things, uh, not only controlling robots, but doing, you know, speech recognition and vision and all the other sorts of things that AI is known for, or neural networks, I guess, in particular. I mean, presumably, you know, we're, we're 100 watts, like you said, 20 for the brain and 80 for the body. Presumably, would you guess that that's a lower limit of like you're not going to be able to beat that by an order of magnitude or, or maybe evolution would have figured out a way to do it already or. Are yeah, you... definitely. I okay. mean, if we could get, yeah, if we could get anywhere near the brain, we'd be happy. Sure. So I think we're still, you know, maybe a thousand, right. like three, or, three orders of magnitude away from a brain. Uh, but that's still better than being six or nine orders of magnitude, which I think current computers are. Yeah. I mean, I think about it, you'd just be able to like open a door and throw a Big Mac in and that thing would run for three more hours. Right. <laughs> Cause it's all well, it needs. Um, we might plug it in, but or well, have big, I don't know. big I don't batteries. Know. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, so keep keep going with that. So, the the biggest supercomputer in the world uses twenty million watts ish, and we use twenty. Right. Um, are we doing it? I guess because we're so parallel, we're so concentrated, we're so I guess low low power. You know, all of the electrical impulses individually are very tiny. Like. What, yep. what's our what's our trick <laughs> yeah I mean that's exactly the kind of thing people have been wondering about what is you know what aspects of the um, structure of the human brain are really the ones that bias this kind of improvement in performance for uh, and efficiency um, while doing that particular set of algorithms right I think that's always one thing you want to keep in mind is that 
when you build these neuromorphic computers, they're really good for some algorithms and not for others. So they're not going to be great for super high-speed arithmetic or very large database storage and lookup, but they will be good for things like recognizing images, controlling uh, arms and bodies, learning on the fly, you know, all the kinds of things that we want our AIs to do. Um, but right, so getting back to the question, what are the sort of fundamental things that are important about the brain that we capture with neuromorphics? Uh, and uh, I tend to think that there are three, uh, at least. So, you know, one is massive parallelism, which you mentioned, and that is that we often solve problems not by running with really high clock speeds and doing things super fast, but doing them much, much slower, which can actually take way less energy, um, but doing them massively parallel. So a lot of these chips, you know, they don't have one core or eight cores or 10 cores. They have thousands of cores on one chip. Um, and so they're all running at exactly the same time. Um, so that's number one. Number two is when you try to, you know, coordinate thousands or millions or billions of cores at the same time, it's hard to do. And right now, most computers rely on a global clock, right? So you have one clock that's basically synchronizing everything, say, okay, everybody say something now, everybody do some processing, everybody say something now, everybody do some processing. So this kind of synchronous communication, again, if you have many, many cores spread out over a wide area and so on, you don't want to have to try to synchronize them because you can spend huge amounts of energy trying to clock everything. Um, so instead, the kind of communication that you tend to find on these uh, neuromorphic platforms is asynchronous communication, where you have lots of these cores essentially running independently, and when they have something important to say, they'll say it, right? Um, and send out that information, and then allow the other cores to accept information at any point in time and integrate it into their computing. Um, so again, this this kind of you know say things when you need to and not otherwise uh, is a source of power savings, and again, uh, sort of replicating what the brain is doing. Uh, and then I guess the um, the last one uh, would be that uh, to have efficient computation, you only want to send information when you need to, right? So not only can you send it asynchronously, but you don't need to constantly send it all the time. So uh, I guess the way to, to think about this is if you think about standard neural networks, you have an artificial neuron, and usually it outputs a number between 0 and 1 or something like that, and it puts that number out all the time. Like every single time step, it puts out that number until its input changes and it puts out a different number. Um, if you look into biological systems, of course, you have neurons. And what they do is they either spike or they don't for any particular point in time. So they'll emit a, a brief one or they'll say nothing, right? So people think of this as ones and zeros a lot, um, and you, and which is you know, a reasonable way to think about it. And if you do, then what you're noticing is that uh, you basically have this massive sparsity over time. So you know, real biological systems are dealing with changing environments. And so activity is changing all the time. The problem that needs to be solved is changing all the time. And these neurons are only saying something when they actually have something interesting to say. And otherwise, they're silent. And so this you know, hugely reduces the amount of traffic in a network. So instead of everybody yelling all the time, you know, I'm firing at 10 hertz, I'm firing at 10 hertz, I'm firing at 10 hertz, they'll just every you know, 10 times a second, they'll say something. And then uh, that way of transmitting information you know, greatly decreases the amount of energy that you need and the amount of information uh, traffic that you have on your network. And again, that can be a huge power savings and be a much more efficient way to compute, especially when you're doing it uh, over time, right? When you really want to do these dynamic computations, things that are like controlling an arm or recognizing video or processing speech or what have you. So it's like there's some part of your brain that's looking for danger and you're in the coffee shop and a bear comes in and it just sits there quietly and then it sees a bear and it's like, bear! <laughs> and so yeah, it's like it, except they doing do nothing. Much. Yeah, they generally don't. It doesn't have to be that interesting. <laughs> so right, I think that's a, right. that's a good way to describe it. But you know, some neurons they're Elvis. Just, oh, right. look, there's a light in that location in my right. receptive field, and it's now brighter. Like you know, it doesn't have to be a bear. <laughs> so, that's a great idea. If you were a, if you were a betting man, this is a real quick question. If you were a betting man, are you gonna are 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 you in your field gonna get to the twenty watt brain before the roboticists get to the eighty watt equivalent to the human body? Like, which of those is a harder problem? Oh, geez, yeah, I uh, yeah, I don't think either of us are gonna get there anytime soon. Okay. So uh, I th I think we would both be happy with you know a factor of a hundred. So if we could get to the uh, two thousand watt brain and the whatever 8,000 watt body, we'd probably be pretty happy. So t do you have opinions about how transfer learning works in people? Because that's something we do really well. And, um, you know, we, we, we can so effortlessly take domain knowledge in one area and use it in another 
that we'd never seen before. And we're very f- kind of fluid in our, our intelligence. And if, if, if I say, well, do you have theories on that or ideas? Um, yeah, actually, one of the very first computational models I ever built was a model of analogy. And, uh, you know, people often think of uh, things like transfer learning of the kind you're describing as b- being fundamentally based on the ability to do analogies, right? So find structural similarities uh, independent of sort of content. And that's a, a way of doing reasoning across domains and is a way of explaining certain kinds of creativity and, you know, all kinds of uh, interesting features of human human intelligence. So do you think that a general intelligence, an artificial general intelligence, do you think that that sort of intelligence is kind of a pretty straightforward thing we just haven't quite figured out, but there's going to be a breakthrough that is like an aha moment and it's going to, or is it like, you know, Marvin Minsky type, it's just a hack of a, of a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 individual skills that, that all come together, you know, and it's, it's a long, hard slog to an AGI. <laughs> um. Yeah, I guess if I had to pick one of those two options, which, you know, a little bit on the extremes, obviously, uh, that's why it's an interesting choice, I'd probably go with a more the Minsky route. So, you know, this is kind of in line with my claim before that I don't think there's anything fundamentally theoretical that we're missing in our understanding of how brains work and hence our, you know, quest to sort of reconstruct or simulate them. Um, and so I think a lot of what we need to do is exactly this kind of engineering, but we, the engineering of, you know, figuring out how all the different parts work, getting them to coordinate and making them, you know, be able to learn to uh, work together in a way that is robust and all that kind of thing. Like there's definitely a lot of interesting challenges there, integration challenges and so on. Um, But, uh, you know, we probably will discover some things along the way about exactly what it takes to coordinate such a big complicated system um, or maybe, you know, new kinds of architectures that are critical in order to learn the structure of different kinds of, domains of knowledge and so on that we really don't know about yet. Um, but I don't consider those kind of like fundamental theoretical changes. So you, you, you fully accept the, like that there is a thing called artificial general intelligence that there'll be a moment when you can look at it and say, aha, that's it. Assuming you, you, you think that's a, a valid concept. The, the range of when people think we're going to get it, in my experience, is between five and 500 years. If, where, where would you, I, I won't ask you to pick one of the two extremes, like anywhere in the middle. <laughs> Where Anywhere would you be? Um, yeah, again, uh, you know, I think it would be easier for me to answer that question if I knew, like, what criteria we were using. It's, you know, as is often the case, uh, it can be a moving goalpost. So we'll definitely construct more sophisticated things than we've seen now in all of the next coming five to 500 years. Um, will we reach something where, you know, we could look back and safely say, oh, yeah, you know, people from the 20th century would have said, this is a really intelligent machine. Um, so, you know, well, let's assume take- for a minute I'm a machine, you know, I, I emote, I'm expressing creativity, I try to make the occasional humorous comment with, with varying degrees of success, I, I try to, can, you know, make my questions follow the prior ones, um, understand the nuances of what you're saying, all of that. So, yeah. assuming I'm a computer, when would we have a, a me, like to the nearest decade or century? Yeah, you, maybe you're too hard. I don't really know, but I like to prefer, or I prefer to think of like Commander Data from Enterprise. You know, okay. you know this guy. Uh, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> I'll assume everyone knows who Commander Data. Yeah, is. I think so. So the nice thing about him as an example is that you know he passes almost all of those tests, but not all of them exactly right, right? And you know they they had episodes about whether he was really a person and really deserved rights, and they had episodes about you know his inability to understand human emotions, and episodes about him trying to get things about humor, which he seemed to have a hard time with and so on. Um, I would consider us having achieved AGI if we had something like commander data. Okay, and so, that's the 23rd century. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say? Is that early or late? To, to get that? Um, yeah, I, my suspicion is that's going to happen sooner than most people expect. So I'd, I'd put it in the 100-year range. So I have th- three final questions. We're running out of time here. My first one is there's uh, more than a few people who are alarmist about that and think that, you know, such an intelligence would be able to improve itself, you know, in, in digital time. And it would, it eventually would, you know, be so much ahead of us. We can't understand it and it wouldn't even hardly notice us, or maybe it doesn't like us or what have you. <laughs> this whole 
this whole narrative around a superintelligence and why you might need to fear it, do you give that any credence? Absolutely, yeah. So I definitely think that, you know, you could probably go out of your way to build something that was really dangerous. Um, and, you know, I always like when people worry about AI, I like to think about worrying about nuclear war and nuclear technology in the same kind of way. You know, there are some fantastic positive applications of this technology, and there are some very scary negative applications of the same technology in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, what I tend to, to suggest is that we need to take the threat seriously, um, but we also needn't think that it's an unavoidable threat, right? Um, just as like many people thought nuclear war was a completely unavoidable threat, uh, you know, you know, time hasn't ended, so we don't know if we've definitely avoided it, but we seem to be doing pretty pretty well so far. Uh, and I think we want to treat AI with the same kind of care and sensitivity, right? So it's definitely not something we should dismiss, um, but it's also not something which is inevitable, right? I think it's the kind of thing where we can make explicit decisions well, to try to... I guess to I'm asking about, specifically about a superintelligence, the idea that, the, that an artificial, that commander data then is able to improve himself at a rate that is so fast that, um, you know, it, it, it evolves beyond us and we, we become insects to it. And it is, and, and that isn't something that like somebody would have to, that would just be the natural order of things happening. Do you? Yeah, that's, I guess that's the part I would disagree with. I think, okay. you know, um, so unlike for biological systems, digital systems that we create don't have a natural order in, in a way that we have no say in, right? So the, the mere fact that this is something we're building, um, makes it seem like it's also the kind of thing that we can put constraints on, we can give it the kinds of goals that are reasonable or not. So it probably wouldn't be a good idea to give an AI the goal of surviving at every cost, regardless of anything else. Um, you know, so a lot of the movies that you see are uh, predicated on these kinds of goals being essential and also um, access to resources of these systems being enormous. Um, so, you know, those are exactly the kinds of places where we could make decisions about, you know, what are reasonable things to um, design into our systems with goals or what are not reasonable things, what things should we outlaw, and what things should we, you know, try to uh, support and, and so on and so forth. And so I do think that, you know, unlike with biological systems, we're in a position to try to make decisions about exactly what we do and don't allow. So in the science fiction world, I assume you consume it. You mentioned data. Is there any view of the, of the future, be it movie or TV or book or, or, or any of it, that you look at and think it could happen that way? I mean, Ex Machina, Her, uh, Matrix, um, any, any of it? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I would give different answers to different, different uh, examples. So I think um, in general, the kind of... Uh, what cases that appeal to me more are the ones where, you know, we're working closely with AIs, where they are kind of like uh, tools, subordinates typically to humans. So again, you know, things like um, Star Trek, I guess, are examples of that. And Star Wars too, I guess, to some extent, um, where, yeah, it's, it's not the case that uh, they've been let out of control or they can take over and do whatever they want. Um, but, you know, they're definitely very sophisticated and they have all kinds of uh, powers to do lots of things that our machines can't do right now and, and so on and so forth, right? But, but uh, generally thinking of it as a, uh, another step in the sort of technological development of the human society, um, one which, you know, we need to be careful doesn't eliminate us, just like uh, certain kinds of genetic technologies and nuclear technologies and so on, um, but ones that we can successfully deal with and, you know, have a have a good future <laughs> instead of the uh, the ones that are often imagined. And then, final question: If people want to keep up with you and your work and your thinking and your writing and all of this stuff, what are what are the various options? Uh, so, my lab has a web page at compneuro.uwaterloo.ca, and my company has a web page at appliedbrainresearch.com. And those are probably the the two easiest ways to see what's going on inside the uh, the lab and the company, respectively. All right. Well, we will make those um, uh, links in the transcript and uh, people can, can follow you there. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much. This is uh, obviously a topic I'm incredibly interested in. And I thank you for your patience with uh, a whole lot of, of, uh, of, of odd questions, I'm sure.
<laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.